Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, episode 19, the one about Yorkshire Tea, Elgato ScreenLink, Your Data, and The Lost Boys. Let's get on with the show. And welcome to another recording of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. We are back with more news, tech, content, and wisdom from the world of marketing. My co-host is the man on a mission to keep marketing simple, the voice of the Marketing and Finance Podcast and the host of the Roger Rock video series. I give you Monsieur Roger Edwards. Ah, hi, how are you doing? Good to see you again. It's always, always a pleasure to spend time with a man who's also on a mission, this time to demystify content marketing. And he is also the voice of the Content Marketing Studio video podcast. Here is Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much for the introduction, and thank you to you, viewers and listeners, for your support. This is episode 1919. We have something special planned for number 20, but for now, let's move on to In the News. Dr. Martins is launching a new content series in partnership with Liverpool radio station Melodic Distraction. Entitled Dr. Martin Presents, it will focus on supporting local artists and creatives facing challenges due to COVID-19. Well, 71% of British consumers are reluctant to shop in store for Christmas, according to a research from Klarna and Retail Economics, with 56% saying they expect to do more online shopping this year than ever before. Facebook India recently released resources to help businesses go online swiftly. The social network also announced a grant of $4.3 million to support Indian SMBs during the tough times as part of the $100 million global grant across 30 countries. Wow, well, social media still. LinkedIn recently surprised all of us with yet another redesign of its interface, which followed the rollout of LinkedIn Stories to its 772 million account holders. Parent company Microsoft is reporting record levels of engagement up 31%. Starbucks launched its multi-channel Christmas campaign in the US with the tagline, Festive is a tap away, download the app today and it rhymes. Coffee lovers will be encouraged to use the mobile ordering app to limit in-person contact. Well, Marriott International has been fined £18.4 million by the Information Commissioner's Office for failing to protect 339 million guest records from a cyber attack that took place in 2014 but remained undetected till September 2018. And finally, Nintendo has reported huge profits for 2020, up 200% as people bought millions more Switch consoles and tens of millions more copies of both new and old games than expected. We finished with Google Chrome, remains the most popular web browser in the world, but Microsoft Edge is now the favourite for 10% of web users, which is quite an achievement for a web browser that is less than one year old, Roger. It's not my favourite web browser, Pascal. Um, it, it, it does. It, it's got quite annoying. It's it's pinned to the bottom of the um, the Windows desktop thing, and it's actually difficult to get it get it to un, unpin itself. I, I just use Google Chrome, but sometimes I accidentally activate Microsoft Edge instead. So you are the coffee lover amongst uh, you know at the two gigs and marketing podcast. So what do you make of Starbucks with his lovely rhyme to promote that the app? Inevitable, I suppose, because of COVID carrying on. You know, we've just gone into a lockdown again here in the United Kingdom. Things are pretty much the same across many countries. And and let's face it, coffee shops, there are two types of coffee shops, really, aren't there? The ones you go into quickly to get a coffee 
and then you take it away or it's a place to meet up maybe do a bit of work and and it's that that social element to it that's that's disappeared so i I guess they're just reacting to to the times as always and finally let me ask you does it make sense for you for a shoemaker like doc martis to get involved in a radio station and content marketing I think it probably does. I mean, again, I, I have these perceptions of, of Dr. Martens as a brand. I always associate Dr. Martens with my school years, and it was always the bullies that wore Doc Martens. Uh, and, and the really, really big, powerful bullies that were the worst were the ones that wore what we used to call cherry docks. And, and the cherry docks were Doc Martens, but they weren't black. They were a sort of cherry red color. Um, so I always just have this perception in my mind that Dr. Martins is somehow associated with thugs, uh, which is very unfair, and, 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 and I'm sure that Dr. Martins wouldn't like that association. So I think that it's good that they can they can use content to promote their brand. As, as long as it's relevant, of course. Um, you know, it doesn't immediately strike me that uh, a, a radio station and, and that sort of content is, is the right fit, but I'm sure when we actually listen to it that it will become obvious what they're doing. And, you know, when we think about some of the previous episodes of Two Geeks and the Marketing Podcast and the In the News segment, you and I have reported of other organizations where there was a strange just acquisition between their core offering mm. and their effort in content marketing. So so why not? And it, it may well be that indeed Doc Martins are favored amongst, you know, artists and, and uh, creatives. For me, the one that I wanted to kind of um, explore with you, thank you very much, by the way, for reading the very long sentence for the Facebook India and the many <laughs> grants around the world but i wanted to kind of bring to your attention that this is a second time now that um, randomly i'm reading obviously a fine from the ico and this is like a, a painful one i mean i'm not sure how much is going to eat into the profit of myot international but 18.4 million but also you know 339 million guest records that essentially six years ago for us now yeah it's you know we're, we're essentially um hacked into and and I think for me it's back to um, a theme that's going to run through actually today about data, data mm-hmm. storage, and data protection. Mm-hmm. And and I think we shouldn't just imagine that this is only for big boys like Marriott and the others that we mentioned a moment ago. At all levels, from being a solopreneur to being obviously multinational, you've got to have process in place to look after that data, particularly if it's not yours. Absolutely, and just just this 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 afternoon, Pascal. Before we hit record on this podcast, I was looking at signing off a website for one of my clients, and they are using a third party piece of software to broadcast a mini conference. It's not Zoom; it's something similar to Zoom. And just right at the last minute, it was. Do you know what? There's no GDPR data declaration as part of the sign up process. So of course, it can't be signed off until that wording is put in place. So absolutely good reminder that we need to keep an eye on these things no absolutely we know it's not the most exciting element of running a business or sales and marketing but it is part of what we have to do to you know behave ethically and and honestly not just um, legally right well listen i think we we start to warm up here with the in the news so let's move on with the content spotlights 
In this segment, Roger and I surprise each other with a find from the internet. Whether it's an article, a video, or a podcast, we always try and surprise each other. So, Roger, what have you got for us today? Okay, Pascal, I've got an article again from Marketing Week. Quite a lot of the stuff that I talk about comes from Marketing Week, but it's a really good publication. And this article is written by Molly Fleming. Uh, let me read you the headline, Nationwide CMO on why aiming for perfection will make you a worse marketer. Now, Nationwide is a is a building society in the United Kingdom. It's a financial services institution, so not the most exciting of uh, of industries and markets. But I, I was really attracted to this by that word perfection because I think we've had this conversation on the um, Two Geeks podcast in the past that there are certain people and certain brands that will become absolutely obsessed with getting something 100% right before they're prepared to put it out into the marketplace. And and indeed, you know, financial services often falls into this trap, notwithstanding some of the things we've already said about you've got to make sure all the data stuff is in place. You know, there's a lot of regulation around financial services compliance that has to be adhered to. So yes, they do have to be absolutely on point. But I think the what this what this person and the the CMO at Nationwide, she's called Sarah Benison, is saying, is that she's noticed this almost this growing obsession with marketers to absolutely agonise over every word and every uh, full stop and perhaps every colour in some of their communications and some of their activity. And, and, and this is something that I've noticed and, and, and obsessed against, you know, throughout my entire career. I mean, I always tell a story of a, of a past boss who made me reprint 60,000 brochures because he saw that they were, uh, it was a micro-shade different to the other set of brochures which was effectively in the same blue and nobody in the entire world other than him could tell the difference and what 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 sarah's saying is you you've really just got to get stuff out there and if it's 80 percent right maybe that's the 80 20 rule again you, you you've just got to get it out there and then maybe refine it and learn from the feedback that you've got obviously you don't put stuff out that's completely wrong and isn't going to work but you can't always strive for that perfection. But the other thing that I really like about this article is that it really does also focus in on what I've always been saying, that marketing isn't just about the communications bits. And what she's also saying is, if you've got your goals right, and if you've got your strategy, i.e. who your customers are, what the problem is that you're trying to fix and what you're fixing that problem with, i.e. your product or your service, then actually it makes it easier to get the communications as near to be perfect as they can be. It's when you don't do the strategic stuff, the the customer-focused stuff, and it's when you don't have your goals that you actually do stand a better chance of failing at the communication side. So while she's saying, let's not strive for that perfection because that will slow you down if you do the other stuff as well it will help you get closer to the perfection that you strive for and i quite like that uh, that double message that's coming out in that article 
I like it a lot too, Roger. Thank you very much for bringing that to the virtual table today. So, so for me, the message that I took away as well with this idea of, you know, the, the the more you kind of delay the release of whatever you're working on, the the more you really you delay the feedback um, loop, which will allow you actually to move on to the next stage of evolution and perfection, if that's what you're seeking of your. And you know, I've had many conversations about blog posts, about videos, about podcast articles. And so on, where you know they are just gathering digital dust in someone's hard drive because somehow they think that they're going to work harder on them a bit longer. Give me an extra hour, give me an extra day, and then it'll be better. But you know, for, for the audience, it's already fine. You know, it's already there. So uh, I, I like it a lot, and, and I think you know, back to leadership then, which is a subject that we and I cover uh, often. Think about it as well about the the impact on the morale of your troops. You know, when you as the boss uh, are kind of forever cracking the whip because you are aiming for this perfection which is frankly purely subjective at this stage yeah absolutely right absolutely right so yeah always remember <laughs> do the strategy bit and then your communications will follow on perfectly super well i went for an article two roger which i think will surprise you perhaps and the publication is the drum the author was the trends editor of the drum called rebecca stewart and the title, I must confess, really, really kind of, you know, caught my attention and I felt compelled to bring it to you today. So the title is Self-Proclaimed Underdog Yorkshire Tea, Finding Its Brand Voice. So that was that was the title. And I'm a sucker for a good story about brand voice. And I love the underdog, you know, story arc. So I thought I've got to go. I will say a disclaimer. I don't particularly like Yorkshire tea. Uh, a bit too strong for me, which uh, for many of my friends out there think, well, you're just a French wuss, no surprise there. Um, you know, who needs enemies when you have friends like this? But, you know, I spend a lot of time in Yorkshire with, with my work and I've got lots of uh, colleagues and clients. But I have to say, a bit too strong for me. But I love the, the brand, what it stands for. And this article really has been is, in, is twofold. It's almost like looking back at what's worked well for Yorkshire Tea, but also how they uh, addressed, you know, COVID and how they adjusted their marketing campaign. Let me start with uh, a question for you. Can you hazard a guess in terms of how many cups of tea are drunk every day in the United Kingdom? It is in millions, just in case you're wondering. Oh, my goodness, Pascal. Do you know, didn't this question come up in... Um Osman's House of Games recently in one of their rounds. I I, I don't know. It's, it must be a, it must be 70, 80 million, 80 million. Ooh, 100 million. That, oh. That's impressive. Well done. That's pretty close. <laughs> that's pretty close. Uh, it's gone up, obviously, because of COVID. Yeah. And despite the fact that trend is on uh, down in terms of consuming traditional tea, it's been replaced by you know, more exotic um, kind of uh, forms of tea. Yorkshire tea still, you know, holds 28% of the market and that sells to the US has gone through the roof. And I think it's to do with, um, again, this idea of Yorkshire, the region, and what they've done for it. So uh, people will be familiar with that kind of slightly tongue-in-cheek um, advertising and, and comments and the way in which they've used, you know, personalities like Sean Bean and Michael Parkinson's for the um, campaign, you know, where everything is, um, you know, done proper. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And the proper, you know, and so I mean, the one about Sean Bean cracks me up every time because you know, if you remember, he walks into the uh, uh, an office in in Yorkshire City headquarters, brandishing a sword and kind of you know giving this kind of rousing you know speech about you know doing things properly, and it cracks me up every, every single time. But what is lovely is that this campaign of where everything is done proper is started in two thousand and fifteen. 
and they've carried on using it uh, ever since. I kind of like that because, you know, I know that some brands, you know, every year they try and entertain us and change the campaign over and over again. But when something is working, back to your point a moment ago about perfection, what, what, why change it? So I think there's something very grounding about it. They had others like, you know, does it dunk and, and a few other attempts, but the, um, you know, doing it proper is still running to this day. When it comes to COVID, a couple of things that they did, as uh, the article will tell us, so they created some, um, you know, Zoom background using scenes from Yorkshire, and then that was a little, um, you know, branding. But the one that really worked well was around September, Roger, when people were going back to the office, and perhaps in the assembly were a little nervous. They had this fun, fun little adverts about the um, social distancing teapot. Did you come across that one? I've not seen that. No. So, so the social distancing teapot had a six foot spout so <laughs> you could essentially make tea for your for your friends and colleagues but not be too close by serving the tea and they also allow people to take part in a competition where you could literally book the official yorkshire tea brass band for your wedding or for your anniversary how nice is that <laughs> fantastic i mean there's some there's been some very strong tea orientated tv campaigns over the decades hasn't there i mean that the very famous pg chip Tip, PG tips chimpanzees, uh, the Techly Tea folk, um, who there was almost like a cartoon approach. So yeah, it, it's it's good to see, and 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 I think what you said before about sticking to a message, and they've been sticking to something since two thousand and fifteen. It's one of the it's one of the, the 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 things that marketing people often do, and and I find myself in this situation as well. You hit upon something successful, but because you've been involved in the creative process for so long, your natural desire is then to move on to start doing something else and and a lot of very famous marketing campaigns have been killed in their prime not because they're not working but because the team have effectively got bored with it and they want to move on but the public are sitting there thinking no we like this it's good we you know it, it, it we associate with it so it's always very worthwhile if you are wanting to move on just to stop yourself and say is it us that wants to move on or is it genuinely the customer that wants us to move on or isn't it working? And you might find that you've got a little bit more life left in your campaign than you thought. Oh, you're absolutely right. Uh, you're right. You know, one has to be very careful about what I call the um, the boredom of the author, because mm. the consumer may be having a blast. Um, case in point, yes. when we mentioned you know, the uh, the film marketing segment, where we can talk about movies decades later. Yeah. Can I leave you with uh, one final comment, which will come from the marketing director of Yorkshire Tea, mm. um, Dom Dwight. He, he so there is a whole segment section. Forgive me on the article about social media. I would invite all of you and listeners to go check it out because it's really quite good about how obviously Yorkshire is approaching social media. But um, Dom Dwight uh, is quoted to say the following about the marketing and essentially how he's driving sales for them. TV turns the flywheel and social media is the hand that keeps everything turning. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Uh, so I love the idea that social media has a, a very particular role. So, but they know where, you know, what the, what the heart of the campaign is and trust, obviously, people from Yorkshire to make an engineering um, kind of, uh, uh, you know, illusion with the, the flywheel. But um, I just loved it, you know. So TV turns a flywheel and social media is the hand that keeps everything turning. And, and that kind of just the way in which the relationship of the different media is working for them. 
It's good to see because, you know, again, uh, I've just recorded a little video about, about this very thing earlier today is that, you know, we're, we're often hearing people say that TV advertising is dead. And, and I don't believe that it is. And, and brands like this are proving that there's still life in the TV channel advertising platform for good many years to come. On the subject of platform, thank you very much, Roger, for the free uh, segue that you just gave me there. Let's move on to marketing tech and apps. And in this segment, Roger and I come with our recommendations and selections to make life easier as a content marketer and business owner. So, Roger, what have you got for us today? Okay, Pascal, now, a while ago, I had a right good moan about <laughs> Adobe Premiere Pro crashing on me all the time. And one of the fixes that they offer you um, is to make sure that your drivers are updated on your computer. Now, drivers have always been this sort of invisible menace as far as I'm concerned on a PC that they, they hide away in the background that there's something to do with the registry there's something to do with making things work but it, it often seems to me that if the computer gets into trouble there's often something going on with the drivers in the background and then what you've got to do is you've got to go to the website of the whether you know Adobe or if it's a, a, a physical device like a microphone you've got to go to the microphone's website and usually the drivers are hidden in side various different menus and if you've got loads of equipment and loads of software on your computer it can become a really full-time job almost to keep the drivers updated and i recently came across this piece of software called driver easy now it, it you have to pay for it it's not much i think it's about 25 pound a year and it does all of that for you it runs in the background, or you can run it whenever you want, and it'll just say, right, this driver, the, the video driver for the t the, 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 the uh, monitor or the uh, audio driver for the microphone needs updating. Do you want to update it? Click yes, and it goes away, and it does it all for you. And my goodness, has it saved me a lot of time. And I have noticed that since I've been using it, things haven't been crashing quite as often. Well, maybe Adobe still crashes as much, but pretty much everything else has been fixed. So driver easy if you have any issues with your drivers on your pc try that it's so good second thing pascal is it's elgato screen link now over the last couple of weeks i've been doing quite a few online conferences and one of the things that i have found slightly annoying is that some of the conference software if you're using powerpoint and powerpoint's either appearing on the screen with you like in a Zoom call, or sometimes I've often I've been using something recently called um, Live Storm, where you actually try to interact with your slides because the slides on PowerPoint appear in a different window on your computer. If you want to advance the slide, you effectively have to somehow flick into the PowerPoint window, hit the button to make the slide advance, and then do another flick to get yourself back into the window for the um, conference software. And whilst the people watching the conference don't see this happening, you know, I'll, I'll be looking up and down and, and making sure that I'm pressing the right buttons. And, and sometimes it's possible, of course, to press the wrong buttons. And I was watching um, a seminar a few days ago, and this lady was using this thing called Elgato Streamlink to effectively solve that problem. And effectively what she does is she runs PowerPoint, or you could be using um, Apple, um, uh, the Keynote. Apple version, Keynote, yeah. that's it. 
You actually run the presentation on your phone and you use this thing called Elgato Screen Link to link the phone's um, visual into your computer. And the software that you're using, like Livestorm or OBS, which we've discussed on the podcast before, will pick that up as a legitimate link. But the beauty is that because your phone is sat next to your desk, to advance the slide, you effectively just tap the phone. And you don't have to do all of that messing around, flipping between windows on your screen. And again, just a little touch like that can make your presentation come across a lot more professional on screen. And let's face it, most of our presentations these days are being done on screen. So anything that we can do to make it a little bit more professional, a little bit slicker is got to be a good thing. Well, thank you very much, Roger. I definitely tried the second one in particular, but isn't that amusing that your selection was essentially driven, inspired by problems and obstacles you had to overcome? And that is the case for me too this week. So, <laughs> so you may remember, I think it was our very uh, last episode, episode 18, I mentioned to you that all businesses, business owners, I would say even kind of home users, were going to hit a problem around data storage. And I made a, a case about this uh, technology around DNA um, data storage. Within days, I hit a data storage issue. So I must have jinxed myself somehow through you know this uh, giving an account of uh, the text reset. So first problem that I had was this very computer that I, I was using. And actually, keen-eyed viewers on the YouTube channel will have sp spotted the error message from my computer. Um, you know, I forgotten to delete a lot of the files that should be, frankly, on the cloud, not obviously on my computer. But even after that, there was still a lot of things going on. So there is a platform called uh, CC, two letters, C as in Charlie, CC Cleaner. And what this interface will do is seek out all those discrete, buried away, you know, files, usually junk files from the internet, sometimes, you know, uh, temporary files, but even files that you've not opened for a very long time. Now, some ancient Word documents, some ancient, you know, PowerPoint presentations and so on that, frankly, you should delete or put in the cloud that are still in your, on your hard drive. So there is a PC and a Mac version, and it's really, really good, very powerful. And also, to be honest with you, bear in mind, our early earlier comment about Microsoft Edge, it shows how much Internet Explorer, for example, that uh, we use on the other PC laptop, clogs up in terms of temp files and cached files and so on. So CC Cleaner becomes almost a companion that you should run once a month and really vastly improve you know, your, your computer. So that was kind of you know the, the alert uh, locally. And then I got another alert from Google, this time saying your Google Drive account is nearly full. Please buy more storage. Just like, my goodness, what's going on? All the space of, of 24 hours. Now, again, I've been using Google Drive, I think now, as we know from our recent uh, in the news item, it's going to be called Google Workspace um, globally very soon. And yeah, I was reaching the max and very tempting to buy more storage because it's not very expensive at all. But I thought, do you know what? Maybe I need to be more disciplined. Maybe I just need to get rid of stuff. So just manually, I managed to get rid of two, two gigabytes of um, content that I don't need anymore. But the one kind of uh, major problem was coming from Gmail, which I've used for, it would seem, ever, Roger. So I came across a little trick. So it's not an app as such, you know, I would argue, but it is a very good trick and very disciplined where you can rediscover emails with large attachment and literally get rid of them. You know, sometime where you have a correspondence with an individual, but frankly, the, the item itself already exists on your computer or on the cloud. So 
I'll put the, the phrase in the um, show notes, but just you know, for our listeners today and our viewers, if you go into your Gmail account and you have the search box at, at the bottom, if you write has, colon, attachment larger, colon, 10 megabyte, 10 as in number one zero and MB and press return, you're going to get all the emails that have attachments that, have, that are more than 10 megabytes listed for you, even organized whether they are videos, PDFs and so on. And then you can take a quick look. And usually in my case, I was able to delete all of them and save myself another 1.5 gigabytes of content just in the space of one evening with a glass of wine. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, I have to say, on my computer hard drive, I've got some Word documents and some PowerPoint presentations going back to 1996. And I don't even think Word can even open them anymore. <laughs> but but that's but they're there. I, I seriously will probably have to delete them at some point. No, thanks very much. So that uh, has been great. Shall we move on to a segment where, again, inventors perhaps get it right and also get it wrong? I'm talking about This Week in History. Yes. In 1855, British explorer David Livingstone becomes the first European to discover what was known as Mossy Oatunia, the smoke that thunders. He later renamed this mighty waterfall for his monarch, Queen Victoria. Wow, well in 1936, the first issue of Life is published in New York City. The magazine quickly became a pioneer in photojournalism. But the weekly publication stopped in 1972 after Life lost its audience and advertising revenue to television. In 1945, the founding of UNESCO takes place in London with a clear mission, which was shaped by the Second World War, to advance peace, sustainable development and human rights by facilitating collaboration and dialogue amongst nations. Oh, lovely. Well, in 1963, a Bell Telephone launches the first electronic push-button telephones to customers in Carnegie and Greensburg, Pennsylvania. But the star and hash buttons would not be introduced before 1968. And in 1969, the first permanent link on the ARPANET is established between UCLA and the Stanford Research Institute on the 21st of November. This connection is considered to be the very first link of what we now know as the Internet. Well, a year later, in 1970, Douglas Engelbart receives a US patent for his XY position indicator for a display system, a device which you will call later a mouse because the cord looked like a tail. In 1986, Big Trouble in Little China is finally released in the UK after a disappointing reception in the United States and most of Europe. This John Carpenter's film would become a cult classic and a rental video hit for many decades. Well, in 2007, Amazon introducing their Kindle to the world and the ebook reader becomes an overnight success thanks to its integration with Amazon's extensive book distribution. Listen to this, Roger. The Kindle sold out within five hours of its release. Ooh, five hours. That's incredible. I wonder how many they made in the first, uh, in the first run. Well, clearly not enough. Maybe they were nervous, maybe they weren't sure. Uh, but uh, wow, I mean, I have to tell you, it's almost become, uh, you say Kindle, you mean any book readers, don't you? Yeah, is? yeah absolutely. It, the, the Kindle is the hoover. It, the Kindle is to book readers as the hoover is to vacuum cleaners. It's become a verb, hasn't it? It's become a, the, the, <laughs> the descriptor. It's incredible. 
So I wanted to ask why, you know, obviously we need the start and hash button on phones because clearly we managed, you know, fine for quite some years. Um, I remember, you know, we had the old-fashioned phones in my house, you know, when you had to kind of roll the dial. And, of course, if you messed up a number, you had to start from the beginning again. Yeah. And when eventually we got a new phone with push buttons, we thought we moved into the 21st century already. I can remember the trim phone with the <laughs> buttons. That was that was good, and, and the uh, the handle used to go across the top. But, uh, I mean, that, that that we still use the hash button now, don't we, even on our electronic phones um you know i'm i'm forever joining conference calls where you have to say your name and then hit the hashed key <laughs> yeah it just was very strange but uh, i could i couldn't help but smile you know when uh, i read out the news about the uh, inventor of the mouse uh-huh. he called it the xy position indicator for a display system thinking i think roger's gonna have a field day with that one oh. but uh, have you ever seen the picture on the net about what they look like back in this in 1970 I've not seen that, but it is a perfect example of somebody coming up with a gobbledygook nonsense phrase and then some other genius finding a much easier way to describe it. Yeah, and so literally it was a wooden box you know, with uh, two dials, one for the X, the X axis and one for the Y, and he was able to obviously display that on, on the computer. But it's hard to imagine actually using computers without, without a mouse uh, or a trackpad and because, you know, obviously it makes you working much, much faster. The one thing that uh, I remember whilst I'm talking to you about the mouse is obviously, did you ever play that game where you had to use a ball and try and obviously protect, you know, the surface of the earth against missiles? Oh, you yes. Quickly, you had to quickly position. I was so bad at it. Uh, I mean, um, it makes you wonder why I became so good at using computers because that game, I just couldn't understand how to play it. It was called Missile Command, I think. And <laughs> uh, yeah, I, it was it was, it was was one of those ones that was fascinating to watch people play. But I was the same. I mean, I, I pride myself in being very good at some early um, video games like Defender and Pac-Man, but Missile Command, I could never get the hang of it. Maybe it was that that ball. Maybe it was that ball. Yeah, I just struggled. And just to close on this this week in history, can I just suggest to you that, you know, Mossi Oatunia, the smoke that thunders, is such a nice name. What changed it to, you know, the Victoria Falls? Yeah, I think they should have left it. You you had to you had to tell me how to pronounce that before we actually did this part of the show, and I've since forgotten how to pronounce it, so I'm not going to try and say it again. But yes, whatever it is and however you pronounce it, it sounds better than Victoria Falls. Or even the translation, you know, the smoke <laughs> that thunders. Absolutely right, the smoke that thunders. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks very much again for you know helping me reflect on history, and also, of course, uh, we are all, all benefiting from trials and errors of our predecessors. But talking about people who are looking to the future, let's move on to the creators' shoutouts. And in this segment, Roger and I put the spotlight on amazing content creators who are looking after their community and bringing value to the internet. Roger, who have you got this week? Okay, Pascal, I'm dipping back into um, a market which I work with quite often, financial services, and I'm going to shout out Mr. Alex Curtis. Now, Mr. Alex Curtis runs a podcast and it's just got a fantastic name. Now, just a little bit of background. Alex is a bit of a geek 
like you and I. He likes his science fiction films. He likes his Marvel films. And I've spoken at a couple of Alex's events, and I've been on Alex's podcast in the past. And uh, he ran a live event last October. It was down in Peterborough. I went down, did a keynote speech, did the John the Wine Man segment. And in March there was going to be another conference and of course that became an online event and I and I spoke at that as well which was was really nice of him to ask me back so soon afterwards but it's mainly targeted at financial advisors but it's one of those podcasts again that if the subject subject matter is right it really appeals to anybody who's interested in marketing so please don't let the fact that he does target it at financial advisors to put you off the name of the podcast is advisors assemble which i love mm. that little that little hint I'm so jealous to, to, towards <laughs> the avengers you know avengers assemble it's just that one of those genius moments and, and i've seen alex on stage and he often brings things from pop culture into his presentations he's he's often using Batman quite a lot. I think Batman's one of his favourite characters. So I'd like to shout out Alex Curtis and Advisors Assemble. And as always, I will put the link in the show notes so that you can find it easily. Oh, thank you very much. I'm definitely going to be checking this out. There's nothing like, you know, finding hooks to bring your audience on board. Well, my selection today is a lady called Deepa Natarajan. I love saying her name. Now, Deepa is actually based in Toulouse in the south of France, where I was born, but that's just a coincidence. But she's an executive coach, and for a while now, she's been helping leaders rethink their approach to, obviously, leading a team, but also achieving their goals, but really Tapping into their potential and creating what she calls harmony in terms of you know leading with inner peace and ease. And I think what she was arguing that sometimes we the manner in which we lead teams is by adopting techniques and tools that are not suited for our temperament and our true talent. So she has a program called Meet My Potential, which then became a podcast, and recently she launched a YouTube channel. So we have almost new beginnings in there. And the reason why I wanted to kind of uh, mention Deepa to you today, Roger, and to recent listeners, is I would like you to also observe how she's crafting her videos. You remember a moment ago when we looked at This Week in History, we're talking about, you know, life and photojournalism. I think that she's already getting her uh, uh, to setting the, the the trend towards video journalism, particularly with the very first one in her channel. And because of lockdown, she's not able to go out as much, and she's not able to craft the kind of content she would like. So she's kind of resorted to being indoors more. But even then, they are really, really well thought out, and where she's mixing animation, uh, text, and obviously her talking head. So um, I would highly recommend that people check it out, both for inspiration as a leader, but also for yourself. And she's really all about this idea of tapping to your true potential. She has titles such as, for example, um, bringing value without losing time with perfectionism. Oddly, Roger. <laughs> she has how to overcome self-doubt. She also had things like why and how to say no and so on and so forth. So some, some great content in there. I wanted to give um, Deepa Natarajan from Meet My Potential today's shout out. That sounds fantastic. Now, I, I'm actually watching quite a lot of YouTube at the moment. I follow quite a few really interesting travel vlogs and a couple of marketing people. And this sounds like it's another one to add to the su subscription list. Uh, I would definitely. I would definitely do that. Right. 
Roger Edwards. It's time. For film marketing. Yeah. Right, Roger. I want you to imagine that we are the 2nd of June, 1986. Okay. And you are standing there amongst a group of people listening to a really unknown film director who says to you, our job is to make the coolest vampire movie ever made. His name is Joel Schumacher, and the movie is The Lost Boys. Do you think they achieved their goals? Absolutely, 100% damn right they did. I mean, goodness gracious, Pascal, you and I have wanted to talk about this film for as long as we've been doing this podcast, and for various reasons we've had to put it off because we do tend to focus on a few films from the 80s, so we have delayed talking about this. But The Lost Boys, again, it's just one of those films that is has almost become timeless. You know, it's, it's definitely a film like Back to the Future, which we've always talked about on this podcast as well, that I can quite happily watch once or twice a year and enjoy it massively each time but yep it's a vampire movie as you say and parts of it are really quite frightening and really quite gruesome in their execution but at the same time it has got that coolness the soundtrack of the movie is incredible there's so much good contemporary pop and rock in there the location which was set in an imaginary town of Santa Clara, but was actually filmed in a place called Santa Cruz in California. And it's the most of the movie is actually set on a boardwalk with a fairground. You know, you've got a roller coaster, you've got um, carousels and, and bumper cars and that sort of thing. And there's, there's an element of family in there as well. But yeah, it, and, and motorbikes and cool costumes and, and obviously shoulder pads as well because it was the 80s and, and 80s hairstyles. Uh, I definitely agree that they managed to make the coolest vampire movie. And I, and I know you love it as well. Uh, I do. And I don't think as much as uh, my wife, Denise Fintoni, does, <laughs> uh, I hasten to add. Um, and I earned some serious brownie points, husband brownie points, when I came back from my second Comic-Con with a Frog Brothers t-shirt, <laughs> um, which had all, all the kind of design work and so on. And also when I had the immense pleasure to go to um, Los Angeles at the American film market, I went on the Warner Brothers studio tour and there was a shop there. And when I walked in, there was a massive poster of The Lost Boys. Mm. And there was also black and white stills of, obviously, the character of David, played by Kiefer Thuzzland. And uh, I brought that back as well with me. I remember seeing this at the cinema. Um, and I think this is a film that is uh, shot for the big screen, mm. no doubt about it. Mm. And I remember when I left, I knew, although I couldn't understand why, that I'd seen something very special. But for me, back to your point earlier, what has remained ever since, I saw it probably in 87 when it came out, obviously on the big screen all over the world, the two songs, the rendition of Jim Morrison's, you know, um, People Are Strange and also Cry Little Sister, has those two songs have been with me forever. And I could sometimes put the soundtrack on its own via YouTube, or I still have the CD somewhere in the house. And you're right, it's just hit so many, many, you know, kind of uh, tick so many boxes, that film. Yeah, and yeah, Kiefer Sutherland, incredible performance. Again, he's he's got that element of being really cool. Um, and then he just, you know, the 
the snap of a finger or the blink of a candle, he turns into this horrible, really quite gruesome-looking vampire. But you actually want to be David, don't you? You know, it, I, 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 what I remember when I watched this film originally, I didn't want to be one of the Frog Brothers defeating the vampires. <laughs> I, I thought, the vampires are having a really good time here. You know, they're hanging out on the beach with their mates. They've got all these chicks around them and they're having fun drinking and riding mo- motorbikes i want to be him i don't want to be the the frog brothers they're the they're the comic geeks i want to be the i want to be with the cool guys i think it's probably when i wanted to have a leather jacket myself yeah after watching you know <laughs> after watching the lost boys but what is interesting so i know that many people uh, are aware from the backstories but i think it's fun to remind ourselves so this film originally was scheduled to be directed by richard donner okay um who had just finished goonies and he wanted to work and concentrate on lethal weapon instead mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and therefore had to pass uh, his wife lauren uh, was working with him and had had a great time working on tentamos fire with uh, joel schumacher and obviously joel was given the uh, the job but to begin with george joel schumacher didn't want to actually direct lost boys because the original script was essentially the goonies versus vampires and he wanted, uh, didn't want to do that. And he also just sensed that this was not going to work in 87. We were approaching, approaching the 90s. The When you watch the um, special edition of The Lost Boys, there's an interview of Joel Schumacher who says they had prepared a fax to send to Richard Donner and his wife Lauren to say she turned down the job, thinking that would be the end of their friendship and perhaps the end of his career. Because, <laughs> you know, how do you turn down, you know, uh, Richard Donner and his wife? Uh, so he went for a jog. And whilst he was jogging, he actually imagined the vampires on their backs wearing leather jackets and being essentially, you know, um, thugs. And he, he uh, then spent some time to put his uh, ideas down on paper. And then he said to Richard, I've got this idea. What do you think? And Richard loved it. I wonder there's a lesson for all of us content creators that maybe we need to go out for um, drugs a bit more to come up with good ideas. <laughs> I think they call it they call it an idea shower, don't they? Most <laughs> most good ideas come in the shower uh, that when you have in a wash in the morning or in an evening. But yeah, getting out and doing some jogging. I think yeah. I mean the the fact that they may not have made this film for that very reason is actually quite shocking. But again, the fact that you know if if you've got an idea in your head, you know sometimes whether it might be lack of confidence or imposter syndrome or something like that you might it might prevent you from sharing it with somebody imagine if Joel Schumacher hadn't shared that idea with Richard Donner this film might never have been made so always if you've got an idea in your head no matter how silly you might think it is it's always worth talking to somebody about it because it might nurture it and eventually it might turn into something special so, I mean, people say that, you know, Richard Donner um, didn't want to make The Lost Boys because he wanted to focus on Lethal Weapon. Mm. I think the other motivation was he'd been so knackered during The Goonies with all the kids running around that he, there was no way with the original script he wanted to put himself through that a, a second time. But you're <laughs> right, you know. So, in a way, uh, by passing and giving it to a different director, The Lost Boys became a far, far better movie that people are still talking about. I mean, only uh, last year, they have one of the biggest horror festivals um, organized near Santa Cruz and the cast of the Lost Boys uh, were there including some of the musicians and so on and they had one of the biggest Lost Boys party ever that's one of the, the, the times I wish I lived in America 
Do you know, I think that's possibly one of the reasons why this film has not, uh, above and beyond the fact that it's a damn good film, is that the location that they choose to, chose to film it in is almost timeless. You know, even though there's no technology like mobile phones in this film, it doesn't matter because you can still go to Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk today and it looks pretty much exactly the same as it did 30 odd years ago when they filmed this film. <laughs> you know, and, and just as just as an aside, the, the roller coaster, the bit, the giant dipper, it's called, was built was built in 1924, Pascal. I mean, that's nearly a, that's nearly 100 years old, that roller coaster. And people are still screaming and shouting and going on it now. And and I think it's because that location is timeless that it added to the... The movie hasn't dated. You could watch it. And apart from the silly hairstyles and the shoulder pads, it stands up as a modern piece of entertainment. It does, but also because it's really, really well filmed. Mm. I mean, the way in which photography and the use of light and so on, obviously they had the cinematographer of um, Raging Bull, if I'm not mm. mistaken, and, and goodness, uh, that's also, I think, a smart move, you know, on the production team to bring the big guns when it comes to, you know, the crafting of the film. Because uh, what else did they have? Well, they had actors that were on their way to becoming movie stars. But frankly, uh, as you we saw in 87, when the striking-looking poster came out, there was no names on it because there was no point. No one knew Jason Patrick much. You know, people maybe had some vague notion of Kiefer because of his dad, but all the other cast were really, really uh, unknown characters. But they did have a rather interesting tagline, which uh, you almost hinted at when you were saying that you wanted to be a vampire because it was so <laughs> cool. So... On the poster and some of the DVD covers as well, you could read, uh, sleep all day, party all night, never grow old, never die. It's fun to be a vampire. Yeah, it sounds so good, doesn't it? It sounds so good. So what are the marketing lessons from this film, Pascal? Well, I'll start with the first one, which um, back to my comment about how Joel Schumacher changed the script. I think you should know your audience and don't hesitate to make those decisions. So we know that the first script was a Goonies versus Vampire style, and it was changed to essentially creating characters that were young adults. So they could be cool, they could be sexy, they could be violent and and, and dangerous, but also almost you know uh, t taking over. Because the story really is about David who wants to take over Santa Clara and actually get rid of the head vampire by recruiting people like Michael. Yeah, yeah. And I guess Joel Schumacher was an unknown at the time, but he did have that vision after he'd been out on his jog. And it, it was, you know, again, it's the, the design of the poster, the topography, the, it was just so attention-grabbing, everything about the film, the, the cinematography, the lighting, as you say. Again, I, I keep coming back to that boardwalk setting, you know, the, 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 the that, I mean, I grew up, as you know, in Blackpool, and Blackpool Pleasure Beach is very like Santa Cruz Beach boardwalk, and every time I watch that film, it makes me think of home, with the sound of the roller coaster, the smell of popcorn and the smell of candy floss and the the smell of the oil and the uh, in the, the the carousel it's it's just very evocative so he really had that clear vision as to what he wanted to put together yeah if i, if I just close on that you know for our viewers and listeners i think for me what you're reminding us is 
don't worry about being an unknown. I mean, Joel Schumacher was unknown. I think by that time he made maybe three three mm. films. Mm. Uh, you know, they were not like big hits. None of the actors were known uh, really. Uh, to the fact actually, Warner Brothers took budgets away from them. I mean, mm-hmm. how crazy is that? You know, mm-hmm. we, we we don't trust you, so let's take budgets away from you. <laughs> um, so even though you're unknown, you can still be remarkable yeah. because you have that expression. For me, the third lesson, which builds on that, is tech risks. And yeah. what he did was to combine all sorts of elements. I mean, in there you have, obviously, um, the fact that it's a vampire story, but it's also a comedy, but it's horror. You've got um, comic books. You've got a comic book store because, of course, everything happens in a comic book store. You have a video store. You have video games. You have music. I mean, the music in that film is essential because they use the album to promote the film as well. You've got fashion. You've got motorbikes. It's just great. Absolutely right. And and again, like we've often said on the show, ultimately, yes, it's a vampire film and it's cool and it's got motorbikes and it's got a great soundtrack, but ultimately it's a very family orientated film as well. There's a lot of a lot of feeling of loss in there, isn't it? The the main characters are longing for motherly and father love and approval, but it, it at the center it's still got a lot of emotion despite the horror trappings and the uh, and the scenery and the location you're right and, and i think the film works really well because of uh, diane west you know plays mm-hmm. obviously lucy the mother she, she's the group in fact that's the reason why for those of you who know the movie really well you know she's targeted by you know the head vampire because he believes that he's going to actually bring order to the uh, to david and his, uh, his his kind of followers and he's going to be able to obviously he himself take over santa clara and, and for me you know this idea uh, is there's always essentially almost a normal story that is exemplified by having sort of Thing, extraordinary so it tells the vampires you know it is uh, quite good I mean when we think about you know the Lost Boys its legacy in terms of how it has influenced you know the genre of vampire movies because up to that point vampires were either were old men yeah. ugly men dangerous men but they were not cool and they were not, to your point, everyone wants to be David. Everyone wants to be have the leather jacket and look uh, across between Billy Idol and um, and David the Vampire. But I don't think that without the Lost Boys, you could have Buffy. I don't think you could have Blade with Wilson Snipes. I'm not sure you could have Twilight, you know, the series. So, you know, wow, what an achievement for a movie that even Warner Brothers wasn't sure because when they were on set asking Joel Schumacher, what are you doing? Is it a horror? Um, and Joel Schumacher would say, yes. Is it a comedy? He would say, yes. Well, what is it? <laughs> say, you know, and, and uh, to the point where when they took count, you know, the, uh, the budget away from him, they had to compromise on the makeup special effects. But actually, as you mentioned, they look really good. They look really good, those special effects. Yeah, and 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 this is incredibly geeky, what I'm about to say, I'm sure. But, <laughs> you know, I think that the Lost Boys also didn't tamper too much with vampire lore. You know, vampires in the, in the uh, Lost Boys still can't go out in daylight. That's why they go and, and sleep in the cave during the day. And, you know, we've got crosses and we've got garlic and we've got holy water. Quite a lot of those other things that you mentioned there blade and and um buffy did tamper with vampire lore a bit you know i remember seeing some films where vampires were walking around in daylight without getting burnt but even in 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 lost boys they managed to keep you know the original dracula type vampire lore but absolutely pepper it up with all the modern youngsters and the uh, coolness 
You're right. I never thought of that. She even kept the one about you know a vampire can't enter without being invited. Yes, in. absolutely. And, yeah. And then Max, when he meets you now Michael, played by Jason Patrick for the first time, he says to him because of course vampires are very tricksy characters. He says, you know, you're the man in the house. I will not enter until you invite me. In. Yeah. And of course Jason Patrick, the character Michael, wants to be polite and let him lets him in. So well, listen, you know what? What can we say? The <laughs> movie. Uh, is making Warner Brothers very proud. They is recently actually released a. Um, they actually acquired you know their own YouTube channel officially, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they are releasing. Oh, I'm not sure what they hope to achieve apart from maybe growing an audience uh, online, maybe to have a future channel themselves. But they, re- they recently released a um, essentially a Lost Boys, the Lost Boys preview. It's literally a quarter of an hour of the film. Maybe we have a 4K, maybe a special box set on, on its way. But even Santa Cruz, you mentioned a moment ago, they use as Santa Clara, the murder capital of the world. Now, if you go on the official website or the Santa Cruz you know, tourist board, you can download a Lost Boys map where you can <laughs> visit the different locations. I think there's nine of them. So maybe that's something that you and I should do with uh, Trish and Dennis one day. We should actually have a pilgrimage to Santa Cruz <laughs> in California and visit this, the uh, Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. That would be amazing. <laughs> now, listen, Roger, I am absolutely sure that time is running short for this episode of the Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. Perhaps if our viewers and listeners let us know, we could extend the film marketing segment, but we're going to remain true to our original structure. I want to leave you with uh, a comment from Joel Schumacher. Sadly, we had to say goodbye to him all last time, um, June of this year. But um, he was approached by um, Corey Hem and Corey Feldman during the filming of The Lost Boys. And I will say that it is known because it's been documented in books and also uh, behind the scenes interviews that the cast were very worried that this film would essentially be a career ender for them. <laughs> so the two Coreys, as they are known fondly, uh, approached Joel Schumacher and they asked him, you know, will this film work? Will this be a hit? And this is what Joel uh, said to them. No one knows if the movie is going to be a hit, guys. So we have to enjoy the heck out of it now. We are a family. And whatever happens is not up to us. It's up to the gods. So let's party on. (laughs) Fantastic. I love that. That's great. And I wonder whether this is a message for all content creators out there. We never know what we do and produce is going to work. So when in doubt, just enjoy the heck out of it. (laughs) Fantastic. This was episode 19 of Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. Thank you so much for your support. Please leave comments, suggestions, and feedback in the usual places. Until the next time, go out there and make sure your content is better and faster and done right. He was Roger Edwards. I was Pascal Fintoni. Bye for now.